Vino Week, episode 48. All right, welcome to Vino 101. I'm Bill. Hello, everybody. This is Al. We're ready to talk some wine. Uh, we're going to start out with uh, a British perspective on wine. Uh, yeah, Tim so, Atkin. Yeah, so who's, well, maybe we should say who Tim Atkin is first. Tim Atkin is a master of wine. I um, And what that means is there are, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 250, somewhere in that zone. Yeah, it's there's it, wine. There's not that many people. Yeah, I was going to say below 300 for sure. Um, but this that to get that designation is <laughs> it's crazy. But anyway, he's a usually it's people that are in the end. You know, you're you're going to be in the industry if you do if you go through the all of the work that it entails to to actually um, earn that title. But many people have tried and uh, more have failed than have uh, succeeded. So um, he's given a, a British perspective on, uh, and the title of the article is "Why You Shouldn't Care Much About Wine." And there's lots of there's lots of really interesting uh, tidbits in it. It's really short; you could read it in you know less than three or four minutes. Yep. Um, but uh, he t- he gives a he gives a pretty interesting perspective. Um, there's a number of things in here that I like, but the one that I like um, really is um, his perspective on the value of a wine um five a five pound bottle versus a 10 pound bottle you know it's I mean, it's english so it's going to be in pounds but right. he says um you know once you get to 10 pounds you know the wines will, will get a little bit better because you've already absorbed all the fixed costs and you're starting to pay for what's inside the bottle that's true up to a degree but uh it, it's important to note that a lot of what you're paying for a really cheap bottle of wine, you're, you're usually paying more for the packaging and the shipping than you are for the contents. And I think that's the part that I got out of that. Yeah, for sure. And that the converse is true. So if you buy a really, really, really expensive bottle of wine, not only are you buying the packaging, but you're also paying for that beautiful winery that's yes. in the middle of some high-priced wine real estate. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with that. That's luxury. Their luxury goods exist because, you know, people want to buy them. They do create nice, I mean, they're nice things, but Converse is true. I like the, uh, I like his whole take in this article about wine sort of, um, you know, he relates it to different types of things in your life. So he talks like about politics and but he does make a point that that wine, he was kind of saying like wine can help expand your palate, I guess, is probably a good way to describe that. Really going to pick it up. You're going to learn stuff about how wine's made. And, you know, kind of when I was reading this, I'm like, wow, it's kind of a little bit of my, my own journey. It kind of expanded my horizons on many different levels. So I appreciated his sort of take on that. I also appreciated in the same vein and, and, uh, that it won't make you sophisticated. <laughs> so just because you plunk down a bunch of wine and start, you know, knocking it back, it's not going to make you some um, sophisticated person. I thought that was kind of funny. Well, the proof in that is if you look at me. I mean, come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, it's great, great, yeah. I, I like uh, what he says. He says that uh, uh, above that, he says, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you know this already, but the idea that wine can be good for your health is just plain silly. <laughs> so, yeah. 
is, uh, if, if you're doubting all this stuff he says, you know, ask a friendly neighbor or, or epidemiologist, but uh, not your nearest tabloid or, or nor your nearest wine specialist. So that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, you, you can drink wine, but uh, yeah, it's it's not going to make uh, it's not going to improve your, uh, your your health. So yeah, and actually, it could be uh, it could be a detriment to your health if you if you overindulge. Yeah, it's uh, it, it just shows the um, um, I, I, as I'm going through this again, you know, having lived in the UK for uh, a, a number of years, this article is so British, I, I, I'm at a loss for words. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's really well done. I mean, the the uh, I think the overall point is this is definitely worth a read in terms of what it it. It, it made me think a lot, so um, and, and pretty interesting. You know, it was just well written, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, dovetailing with that, there's something that's uh, you know, as far as the uh, what's good for you. Um, there's an article by um, Eating Well. I'm not really familiar with this magazine, but it's it it talks about what happens to your body when you quit drinking, and it talks about the physiology, uh, the key the key points where you lose weight. You'll sleep better. You'll get sick less. You'll improve your digestion, and you'll stay more hydrated. Your skin will look better, and you'll feel less anxious. Man, I'm gonna have to stop drinking yeah, right away. Yeah, I, I just like I'm reading this article. It's like, why don't you just say stop drinking now, and you'll 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 be everything will be better. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Um, yeah, alcohol definitely has an effect on all of these things and all of these, all, all of this is true. But, um, for those that like to indulge, um, you know, I think the message is all around. Don't drink the bottle. <laughs> Just have the glass. Yes, 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 absolutely. So anyway, that's, uh, I think we've, we've kind of, uh, talked about that a number of times before, but, uh, you know, the one thing I, I've never been able to really, um, get a big impact out of all you know with with not with abstaining is sleep definitely is better for me um i don't know about the getting sick less I'm, i just haven't done it long enough to to really comment on that um I, and i'm not really sure i believe about the digestion thing because for me it almost seems like um wine is a stimulant for uh uh for appetite for me. I could have um, a little um, bit of red wine or white wine, whatever, and I'm thinking about eating 15, 20 minutes later. I mean, it's it's actually stimulates my appetite. So I don't know what the effect is after that as it goes through your GI tract, but I, you know, I don't seem to have any uh, adverse effects in that regard, but I know it definitely um, adds to the enjoyment of the meals that we have. I'm not sure about my skin. You'll have to let me know how my skin looks, Bill. Oh, yeah. It, it, you're beautiful, baby. You're beautiful. It looks great. Um, the, uh, you know, so alcohol is going to have, you know, it, it's going to have a certain set effect on everyone. And at the same time, it will have, it that those effects will be varied. Um, you know, it's just like there are people who can have two or three drinks and not really 
you know, you know, not have an impact on them, at least visibly. And then there are people that have a drink and, you know, it's like they had a, you know, they drank a bottle of wine in one go, like in, you know, like, you know, chugged a bottle of wine. So there's definitely that, um, you know, that, that operating. Uh, sure, you know, alcohol is a poison. So, you know, consuming it, you know, you do so at your own detriment. And, you know, it's just the decision of whether, whether or not you want to, you know, kind of talking about, you know, Tim, Tim uh, Atkins article and this article, I think one of the things that I learned from wine and kind of to, you know, like, you know, why you shouldn't care about wine kind of conversation in a sarcastic way is it it wine for me became, uh, you know, in the French context, almost like a food group, you know, you the first time that you go to a I remember the first time I went to a restaurant and I had wine and it was paired with the food that I had which like made everything but it made everything better <laughs> it literally right, made right. everything it made everything taste better I was like wow this was it was a big it it, it, it was pretty amazing so uh, and, and at the same time I've been to tastings and I've been to dinners where you know, you've had four or five tastings and you have a glass and you go home and you're like, wow, my belly is full of wine and I feel like I just consumed a barrel of wine. It's not, it wasn't, a, it, I mean, I wasn't sick or anything, but it was like, wow, this isn't great either. So, you know, world, word to the wise on, um, on, uh, you know, consuming alcohol, but at the same time, I think you lose something. Uh, I, I, I don't know if loss is the right word, but I've by having wine in my wife and being uh, wine in my wife, that's definitely helped my life. <laughs> You've had but, some wine in your wife. Yeah, okay. yeah, that was all good. Wine in my life um, has definitely helped me experience things in a in a different way because wine is one of those wine. Wine's almost like you know, it's like a th- we'll call it the thinking man's alcohol. Um, you know, if you if you are around wine and start to learn about it which i think wine kind of causes you to do because it's like wow there's you know there's beer right we're only starting to learn that there's different types of beer um just because i think there's so much mass quantity of certain types of beer and i know that's a really simplified um sort of statement but yeah my my point is is that wine because of the different varietals and how it's marketed and sold causes you to think a little bit more about what's in the bottle and i think that starts you know, if you if you're interested in that, you start to think more and more about what you consume. I mean, it certainly helped me think about those types of things. It helped me think about flavors. It helped me think about. I certainly enjoyed cooking before I, you know, knew what I knew today about wine. But that, but having wine as a component of that really expanded my not only culinary horizons but palate. And just you know, just the idea about my palate, I really didn't know that much about it. But being exposed to wine. You know, and how wine people think about that. I, you know, I learned a lot about uh, about flavors and about how your nose and your taste buds work. All of that stuff I got exposed to in a in a in a very deep way, sort of through wine. Everybody has a different journey in that context, but you know, I think it it can really enhance um, uh, a lifestyle, and it doesn't have to be like super expensive. Um, it's 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 enriching in and of itself and i think that's pretty valuable yeah that's a good point you don't have to you know you don't have to be uh drinking 1975 chateau lafitte 
um, to, to enjoy that experience just because of the, the sheer variety of all the wines that are out there. Yeah. And kind of, kind of to, kind of to that point, most people who are new, um, I would say most people would probably have that bottle, that 65 bottle of Lafitte and they would hate, they'd spit it out. They'd be like, what is this? Yeah. You know, cause it's a sophisticated thing to drink and, and I mean, an acquired sophi- taste. Yeah. yeah sure. I mean, sophisticated in the context that if you don't know what's in that, what that wine is and, uh, um, how it's made and why it's, you know, why it's still is even drinkable at that, at that age. Um, it, you know, it's going to taste like, it's just going to taste like gack, but. Oh, you know. one, one point. Uh, I think you said 65. I said 75. Oh, sorry. Just, just saying. Yeah. There'd be a huge difference between a 75 Lafitte and a 65. 65 was the year that, uh, I think it rained, rained the entire. <laughs> It would be an awesome bottle of wine. Awesome bottle of wine. And um, 75 was, uh, a, you know, they were like, they're polar opposites. <laughs> like yeah. one of the best vintages around. So anyway, that's no, an aside. Thank you for that correction. Um, but yeah, that's, and this is my point. I would think that that bottle of 75 or 65 both tastes like gack. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and, and you'd be fine with It'd be okay. Oh yeah, I'd be fine with it. I'd be fine with that. I'd be like, hey, can I get a bottle of Zinfandel or Merlot? Merlot would be good. Is there any Merlot here? Um, yeah, but my point is, is that 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 those types of wines appeal to a very small part of the wine market, and wine has become more accessible. And I notice people when you. I noticed, I mean, living in California, I think this is a little perverted, but when I, and I'm perverted because we're exposed to so much wine here. When I talk to my friends um, in the Midwest, I went to high school and college in the Midwest and my undergrad in the Midwest. They didn't really know much about wine. They didn't talk about wine. And maybe the internet is a part of this too. But now when I go back, people, like, they know different wine producers and they have a favorite wine. And, like, that wasn't even... You know, you went and bought wine in a bottle back in the day um, that had the wicker around it. <laughs> you know, it was probably a Gallo jug. Yeah, you got you know, the Gallo, um, yeah. what do they call it, with the big, uh, had the little hook on it. Yes, jug wine. Guys, <laughs> you know, we're going to have some wine for dinner Hardy tonight. Burgundy. Yes. The Hardy Burgundy. Yeah. yeah. And there was not, there were, I don't even know if there was a restaurant in town where you could go get like a, a bottle of Napa wine back then. This is in the eighties. That's all changed. Yeah. You know, it's all changed. I mean, part of it, part of it, I think is the, you know, part of it's the internet, part of it's retailers, you know, retail supermarkets now are, you know, as we've talked about, they're the bulk of the wine sales and they carry drinkable bottles of wine at reasonable prices. And so, you know, out of 10 people, there'll be a, a handful of those people who will be like, wow, this is really good. And they'll go back and ask for, do you have anything else? And the next thing you know, that group of 10 people now has somebody who's interested in wine. It just takes off. So I think that that's happening in the States too. Well, we know that because we drink more wine than the French now, right? Yeah. Um, the uh, I think that's true. So, you know, yeah, all of the, the health issues aside, I you know, I do think um, it in, uh, wine and having experience around wine can definitely enrich your, um, you know, enrich your, your life. And so that, that, that's why you should care about wine. 
So if you want to enrich in your life, um, one of the things that you want to do is, and we harp on this all the time, is you want to enjoy the product um, in a in in the best. You want the the product to show its, its best in its in, in its light, so to speak. So we got an article here by Marshall Tilden that's talking about aeration versus decanting, and you know it's kind of a. I mean, a lot of people. I don't. I don't know. I probably uh, decant wine more than most people, but I think the general consensus is that most people, I, I mean, generally, I don't think people decant very often. I mean, I go to trade tastings and I might see, there might be a hundred producers there and maybe there'll be like two or three that are actually decanting the wine um, and, and letting it sit aside before it's actually poured. Um, the whole reason behind aeration and decanting is to expose the wine to oxygen and what's it and it's kind of uh it's very interesting because when they're making wine you know as a winemaker you spend most of your time trying to minimize the wine's <laughs> contact yes. with, ox with oxygen and usually you only use oxygen if there's something maybe uh you know maybe you don't like with the wine let's say for for instance after fermentation you got to take a Chardonnay and it's a little stinky. Um, you would probably uh, aerate that tank. You'd probably drain the tank and run it through a stream and get some air. And that, that air would be beneficial at that point before you're going to put it back into another vessel because it would help um, eliminate some of those off odors that you're, that you're noticing. Um, you can, you know, aeration is a really interesting thing. You could go into like a wine store. Um, a wine shop and you could probably find four or five different aerators and just numerous different types of decanters. So you get into this whole thing. It's like, um, you know, wine paraphernalia. <laughs> you can really, yeah. you can yeah. really get taken over by that. Yeah. But the general goal is to just get air to the wine. And it's really important to aerate the wine. If it's a super young, robust wine, say it's a, uh, a brand new Zinfandel or it's a 2016 Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, that's a, that's a really uh, heavy, heavy, uh, robust wine with a lot of tannin. You got to give it some air. And uh, what will happen is it'll actually improve um, how well the, the flavors and the aromas come out of that wine when you give it that air. So there's a couple ways to do it. One way is um, to use, a lot of people use a handheld, um, aerator, you'll see them where you just pour the wine into that and you pour it into the vessel. Um, the wine goes in, it goes through a bunch of spouts and pops out the other end and that helps it get air. Um, I'm lazy. If I'm really concerned about a wine um, getting air, I'll just use two decanters and I'll just pour it real vigorously into one decanter and then I'll pour it into the other decanter and then I'll pour it back into the bottle. And those three pours usually gives it plenty of air. Yeah, it's that. That's a great tip. And the other thing, I I don't know when you're describing that. It's very similar to what happens with an aerator. Yeah, you know, you don't and and kind of, you know, I'm at a point now where it's like, wow, less clutter is really good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, I don't need another aerator or another device that's going to help me, um, you know, put put oxygen in my wine. But it, it is 
it, it is one of those things I would encourage everyone to experiment with, especially if you have a bottle of wine that you know really well what it tastes like and you haven't done this before. Um, doing, uh, you know, doing this whole making, you know, decanting it or aerating it or doing uh, one uh, one bottle of each and seeing what mm -hmm. it's like is a really good way to learn. Um you know, conversely, that's this is another topic of, uh, you know, this sort of learning uh, how to learn. Having that favorite bottle of wine, another great way to learn is around the aging. So, you know, buy a couple of bottles, drink one one year, let one sit for a little while, um, uh, sit for a couple of years and then try it. Uh, especially if you know it well, you're going to learn a lot. And then these tricks will really, you will, I, I, almost all wine you will notice some type, but you will notice some difference with it. And, you know, obviously depending on how, how the wine's made and how old it is, um, all of these will be factors, but you should notice some type of difference. And in, 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 and in general, it, it will mostly probably enhance the wine to some degree. Um, but I haven't seen anybody have any, you know, uh, any other devices or paraphernalia around um, you know these aerators or decanters come in different shapes but I haven't seen anybody you know oh here's a with some new product around paraphernalia where it's like hey I have a, a way to inject oxygen into the wine you know like somebody that's got some canned air thing that you shoot into the wine I could see mm -hmm. that happen it might be a great idea to see if we can sell that <laughs> some oh, super, that. super fast wine aeration or something but no, it's, it's all good tips, and we've harped on this stuff before, but it, it really, uh, these are the subtle things you, like, why do people decant wine? Well, you you know, as Al said, if it's very tannic and it's young, you probably want to put put it, you know, give it some air. Um, and in general, you just want to get the wine, some contact with oxygen or the air out of the bottle, um, it, you know, because it's been cooped up so long, so... You know, it's sort of it. It needs to it needs to breathe, as they say. And and there is another there is one other important distinction between the two. You know, with an aerator, you're obviously adding air to the wine, and with the decanter, you're adding um, air to the wine also. Yeah. But the decanter serves one other important purpose: is if you have older wines that you've been sitting on for a while, so you got a wine that's uh, you got a cabernet that's got 15 years age on it, it's going to develop a sediment in the bottom of the bottle yeah. and that sediment is um it's just um it's not uh, tasty yeah they precipitate out of the wine and they're kind of grainy and kind of gritty yeah. and they're not going to hurt you or anything but it does take away from the enjoyment of the wine and um it actually kind of if if you just if you were to shake the bottle up the wine will appear less brilliant and it'll be a little cloudy so typically what people will do is they'll stand the bottle up for you know a day or so and they will decant that bottle. And if you've been to, you know, a high-end restaurant, the, the sommelier will come out and he'll uh, decant the bottle in front of everybody who have either a candle or a fancy flashlight that he's using. And he pours off a, a fairly large, you know, the, the largest portion of the bottle he pours off. And if he's careful, uh, he'll leave all of the junk that's in the bottle. The bottom will be in the bottle. So there'll be like maybe like a quarter an inch maybe a third of an inch of wine that's still left in there, but that's got all the junk in it. And then the, the clear wine goes into the decanter. So that's a good way. It's 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 crucial with certain types of wines, um, like uh, older style ports, um, 
actually even some um, German wines, older German wines, they throw a, they throw a deposit um, of crystals, and you don't want to, you know, the wine diamonds they call them. You probably don't want to consume those either. They're not going to hurt you, but you know, it's just they're they're they're, they're gritty and they taste weird. The wine yeah. diamonds. <laughs> so so that's another reason why you would use a decanter, and um, and besides, wine in a decanter, depending on the type of decanter that you have. It looks cool. It's a it's a it's a nice um, it's a nice centerpiece for your table. You've got people sitting around. Everyone's having dinner. You're pouring wine out of a beautiful crystal uh, decanter. It just enhances the experience. Also, I agree. I agree. Um, Bill, I don't know if you really want to talk about this. I'll just give you the yay or nay, and you can you can turn me down on this. But the amuse bouche um, smoke tank. Um, tiff that they're having with the insurance company is I I just I'm fascinated by that story. I yeah I like I so I like the story just because it's about a moose bouche. I that 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 name just makes me laugh. <laughs> I yeah. just think it's hilarious. Um, this is a um, this is a great article. Uh, I like it too because I, I you know as you should know from this podcast we. We like to talk about the business of wine. I'm definitely interested in the business of wine. Um, it, um, you know, anybody that can be a farmer and make as much money as you can in the wine business, I think, is pretty interesting. On that note, though, uh, Amuse Bouche is is what are they suing their insurance company or uninsurance company because the uh, insurance company is not paying out on uh, a policy that they had for. Uh, smoke taint of their grapes so these are 2017 grapes um, that were in was it uh, in calistoga and so there was there were a lot of fires around at that time obviously a pretty devastating fire here in santa rosa in sonoma county and uh the insurance company which is what is the it's a it sounds like some military acronym it's awa whack is the insurance company Allied yeah, World Allied World Assurance is saying that the grapes were not smoke tainted and um, where the grapes got the smoke taint when they got the smoke taint they were not covered so um, and I can't remember if they're saying that they got the smoke taint at um, um, in the vineyard, or it was at the production facility, but that's where the dispute is. I just can't remember. Um, but how long has this been going on? It's two years now, right? Or when did it's they? It's two see- years, and they're caught in an insurance company loop where the insurance company is—they're standing on um, what's the term? Um, they're asking them to file more and more paperwork about the, the dispute. Is like you said, when exactly did the smoke taint occur? You know, um, the winery is alleging that, hey, we saw the grapes. When we, we picked the grapes, there was no damage. There was no evidence of smoke taint. Um, there was no, you know, there was no raisining. There was nothing going on. But once the grapes went through the process of being made into wine, that's when the smoke taint reared its ugly head. So the insurance company is balking on that on that thing. And the interesting thing here is that this company is 
you know, this wine that they sell, this is their hallmark, their benchmark wine. It sells for two hundred and twenty five dollars yeah. a bottle. Yeah, I mean all joking so, aside on the all joking aside on the name, this is a you know, this is a um, a high end winery. Yeah. And you know, we're talking about we're talking about a lot of money here. Um, so they, they went through the process, they've paid for the grapes and uh, they 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 fermented the wine, um, they stored the wine. And they had to sell it off in bulk for 11 bucks a gallon. Now, what's interesting for me with this story is um, right about the time that this fire happened, there was all these articles about, oh, there's no problem in the wine industry. There's no problem because 90% of the grapes have already, most of the grapes have already been harvested. No problem. Well, you know, that's true. Most of the grapes had been harvested. It was most of the grapes for like the lesser quality wines. All of the high end stuff, i.e. Cabernet that's in Napa Valley, a lot of that was still hanging in the vineyard. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about the 1% here, these these 1% type of wines. These, these grapes were still on the vine. And when that fire came through, they were definitely impacted. So... I think I don't think this is an isolated case. I think there's probably other wineries that are going through the same thing with insurance companies, and this is just one. I think this is the second one that's come out, and they're all starting to come to head now. But these people um, at this winery, they're they they've done all the stuff. Uh, they filed all the proper paperwork, and the insurance company is saying, "Hey, we're not going to pay you." Well, they're looking at like they're looking at bankruptcy. They, yeah. They're losing a whole entire vintage. They're looking at laying off people that work there. I mean, this is a big deal to them. So that that's what I find. It's not like they, they have um, a whole bunch of uh, – uh, they don't have a whole bunch of different other uh, venues where they can put their wine in. Like a larger winery would have other lines and they would have other brands where they could you know move the wine around. And there's a lot more flexibility in the supply chain. You know, they make one wine. You know? Yeah, and that's that's it. So that's what I find uh, that's what I find interesting. It's going to go on for a while. Um, I hope they make it, um, but uh, the fact is that you know you can't as a vintner lose. You can't do all the work for an entire crop and then lose the entire crop and still stay in business. You have, you got to have revenue, man. Somehow. Yeah. Well. I, you know, not only that, I mean, these guys paid for an insurance policy around all this stuff. So, um, it, it and, and as I read this article, I, I sort of agree with the, the winery in that there isn't a clear explanation from the insurance company, um, based on California law, uh, about why they denied it. They're supposed to, um, you know, provide very detailed information on why your claim is denied, and they're saying that they didn't get that. There certainly appears, and while it's not called out in the article, the insurance company's like, Deni- uh, uh, give us all this paperwork. Give us yeah. more paperwork. Give us more paperwork. Exactly. Oh, oh I guess uh, you're denied. <laughs> you know, give us some more paperwork. Nope, you're still denied. Um, it's... It, it doesn't give a clear explanation. I, look, I understand they're saying that that you know 
the, the smoke taint came from a certain specific location and that location wasn't covered by you know, they weren't covered for smoke taint because it wasn't a location that was covered that's yeah. a bunch of malarkey um in my opinion it's like i had an insurance policy it's 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 very it's very similar in my mind to and yeah I, consumer beware I, I agree with all of that you buy um a flood a flood flood insurance and your house floods and then you call your insurance company file claim and they're like oh well you live in a hundred year flood zone you were covered for a 50 year flood zone not a hundred year flood zone so therefore you're not covered and you're like what i have flood insurance and my house is flooded they're like nope you didn't read your policy this happened a lot this is related to this story in the context there were many people that lost their house and went to rebuild their house only to find out that their insurance company was going to pay them effectively half the amount of money it would take to recover and it was it it's due to the way that they insured they insured the house for 300,000 it was it was actually it, the cost to rebuild is going to be 600 and the insurance company like is like well that's not our problem that's your problem yeah um, who's responsible for that review process you know well yep, that's you. you you're the homeowner yep you are yeah. And a lot of people get caught in these types of situations, and you know this business is in a similar in a similar situation where, you know, according to the terms of your policy, you're not covered. And then just the whole insurance company motion around, give me more. Just I'm going to stall for a year before I make yes. a decision. Uh, meanwhile, you're hemorrhaging money. There is some strategy from a business standpoint there where it's like, well, I'll just wait till you're out of money, and it won't matter. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I know you're going to be out of money. I see yeah. that all the time in business. You know, all kinds of deals. Oh, you want to sell it? You want? You don't want to sell that to me today? Well, you will in ten months when you don't have any money. Yep. Um, so that, um, I mean, that's just it, it's an unfortunate thing. I'm kind um, of going through that right now. Um, I've, uh, I mean, not to this degree. I'm shopping <laughs> for. Sorry. No, no, no. I'm shopping for, we're shopping for earthquake insurance. Oh, God. That's just... And, I mean, I don't know if you've looked into that. Yes. Do what the math. Scam. Do a... the math. By the time you pay the premiums on all of that, have you, if you start, like when you buy the house, yeah, um, you'll have enough money in the bank to, you can tear your house down and build a new one. It's it's the it's the greatest scam. I recognize that it's needed because the whole idea behind insurance is, you know, to cover some unforeseen thing that you don't have the financial um, wherewithal to cover. But it's still a scam. <laughs> I'm just gonna say that's still a scam. So I hope the, I hope the best for um, the folks at Amuse Bush. I hope that they can uh, get uh, get you their get just some, some money back. Yeah, and and like I said, this is this is just one of two two that have come to come about. I'm sure there's more that that are just they haven't come to light yet because that fire just when it roared through that valley, it caught a whole bunch of people. Uh, it caught a whole bunch of people, uh, by you know, obviously by surprise. And you know, not only were you not able to get. I mean, a lot of these wineries, you weren't even able to even get to the winery. You had to evacuate the area. So you left the area. Just just say you got your grapes in and they were harvested before the fire. You couldn't even, there was no power. 
So you couldn't even really carry out your processes. You couldn't even get to the, I mean, there's all kinds of collateral damage. If you had the wine in the tank and it had started fermenting and you vacate the winery for five days, think of what could happen to the wine. There's nobody there to take care of it or watch it or make sure that, you know, it's not, uh, you know, getting overheated in the fermenting tanks. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could happen. So I'm sure there's lots of, uh, there's lots of the stalls being put in place by uh, certain insurance companies. I just can just guarantee that that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about uh, insurance and lawsuits, let's continue on the, uh, on to the uh, Supreme Court's decision about the, um, what is it? It was a resident residency duration law in Tennessee. So it, they said that you had to, um, the state of Tennessee said you had to live in the state of Tennessee for two years or more, I think it was only two years. I might yep, two, two years. Mm-hmm. Um, before you could get a license to sell alcohol, and so interesting to me, the Supreme Court ended up taking this case. And if, if also for me, if you we've talked a little bit about this before, I believe on the uh, on on our cast here. It, it very clearly seemed to be a law that was put in place to protect existing business. So existing businesses, existing businesses got together, got their legislator, legislators to pass a law to get this to. It's a basically it's a it's some type of protection. What build the cynic? Yeah. Come yeah. on, Bill. Yeah. I, you so, really think that happens? Yeah, all the time. It happens all the time. Um, and. Well, I'm really glad this got struck down because it it uh, it, it unpacks it, it makes things more competitive. Yeah, I'm only here for two years. I've only been in business here, but I'm doing a better job. So, yeah, I I deserve to to I, I like the meritocracy and all of that. Uh, but what I think is interesting, so this this went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court um, struck it down. There were two um, plaintiffs in this. Um, that really came that really that the lawsuit was a, that were genitor, progenitors of the lawsuit so one was Total Wine and More which is a I'm sure people on the cast know who this who they, they are they're a massive corporation they definitely have a shot at being uh, the Amazon of wine um, if they if they want to be so the other uh, plaintiff in this suit I think they were plaintiffs not defendants um, was a small mom and pop um, it called uh, Kimborough Fine Wine and Spirits, and they were blocked because the Tennessee Spirit Retail Association said they weren't there long enough. So, um, this all got struck down. But there are other wine laws that are similar to this, not necessarily around you know being in a state for so long, but other protectionist measures that this could really uh, that that. Um, could be um, further struck down and ultimately what that means is uh, more and more competition in the wine and spirits business and and you know there, yeah there are certainly dangers of some company like Amazon or Total Wine and Spirits dominating the market but I think the net net is is uh, you know having more open competition will be good my opinion is is that it will very it will really benefit small mom and, mom and pop wineries and it will enable them to operate and make a living whereas if if um, you know you can't do direct to consumer 
and you have to go through some tier distribution model um, and the Amazon of wine appears um, those really small producers are going to get taken out so this article goes through um, it talks a little bit about some of the um, it gives a little bit of history around the 21st Amendment, and then it goes on to discuss what might uh, uh, what might come ahead. And there are plenty of <clears throat> there are plenty of things that can happen. It also discusses sort of what happens if there's an Amazon of wine, and why that would be bad or good, and how it could be uh, it could be good. So, for example, if there is a big company that does distribution nationally. Having make having them to have a liquor license based on the either the state, the local state or federal law, could be a great thing. Yeah, I don't have a re retail point of presence, but I still have to pay relevant liquor sales, liquor tax, and liquor licenses to where I operate or deliver. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. So if Amazon delivers a bottle of wine to my house, my city in California could get use tax or should get use tax from the sale of that wine or spirit. Um, that would really help. So in California, the only way a city can make money, literally the only way a city can make money in California is to um, have a sales tax, and they're permitted to do that. We don't get money from property tax. That all goes into an education system and redistributed by the state. Yep. So the only way that you can um, pay for your fire and police, and not to mention everything else your city needs, um, and I bring that up, fire and police because that's a big part of the a massive part of the budgets are by charging sales tax and that's why we have nine nine percent sales tax uh and nine plus percent sales tax at the at the county level and at the at the municipal level in california so anyway back you know why does all that matter that all matters because enabling more competition through changing these structures um i think is going to be a lot better and it's going to uh, in terms of what what will be out there, I just think of the small winery said I know they would not be here today if the direct to consumer if the law changed where you could um, and I can't remember the legislation that's talked about in here uh, the law changed where I can ship direct to a consumer now not every state allows that yet, but those that do um, it, it matters because if you go to a small winery and you like the wine, you can buy it and you can have it shipped to your house you could do that like ten years ago so that's what I was getting out of this, and it's it. This is sort of game. This is game changing legislation. Well, sidebar. Yeah, I I just think it's um, it's it's more along the lines of like you. I'm just really echoing what you said. It it opens up free trade, and allows you to, allows businesses to do more things. And on a, on a personal note, um, the couple that were litigants in this also, they moved from. I believe they moved from like Utah out to this area in, in Memphis to open this business. And the reason they moved was they have a daughter that has a disability and they were looking for cleaner air. So, you know, they got kind of got caught in like a little whipsaw. They're trying to improve, you know, uh, they're, they're come to an area that, you know, that's more environmentally, uh, it's, it's better for their daughter with a disability. And they're told they can't open a business that they want to, they want to open. So I'm, I'm really happy that they, they stuck it out and uh, that they uh, they came out on the, the upside. So that's the feel good part about the story. Unfortunately, uh, the not so good part about it is that there's going to be this just opens the door for all kinds of litigation. And there's going to be court cases after court cases after court cases. 
because ultimately what this means is it it means there's been a whole bunch of consolidation in wholesale operations already and what this means is that those wholesalers are going to have to fight a little bit harder to keep some of these uh, to, in order to control the market. They want to control the market, these large wholesalers, and this makes it more difficult for them to control the market. So it's just going to be more lawsuits in the future. Yeah. And that's what I see. Yeah, it it is a t- but I that's true. But I would I would also say that I'm glad that we have a, a structure. Um, in the United States where we can we can go through this process so what I mean by that is that these laws were enacted at a time that you know things were much different from a commerce standpoint I, like the internet didn't exist that's a big thing um, which we still don't understand uh, its impact I was just going to say that yeah I mean we're still we're still sort of figuring that out but having a a a way to discuss and revamp our laws is a great thing. This is an example of it. Yes, there will be chaos for a while. Yes, there will be more resources. But in the end, you know, you know, our commerce system is probably gonna. Uh, well, hopefully, it will net out better than it than it than it than it is right now. And why? What do I mean by that? There isn't truly a free market. So, if I want to. And all the regulations around being a liquor producer aside, just the fact that I want to get into a business that's regulated like that, you know, it, it you know, there's something to be said about that. But I want to, you know, you you create a spirit or wine or beer, you know, you can't just can that thing and like ship it to your friends across the United States for five bucks, even if you're legal to do that. You can't do that. It's not legal. You have to go through these distribution systems that are enacted by law and now having a conversation and making different decisions about that I think is great this law in Tennessee clearly not clearly anti-competitive to to new business um, Tennessee also has all these other crazy laws so does California so does every place else where you have to go it has to go to a distributor and then the distributor's got to sell it to a wholesaler and then the wholesaler sells, sells it to a retailer who is that really protecting? It's a structure that protects those wholesalers and distributors. So making that more competitive, I think it's a good, it's definitely a good thing for consumers. I and, agree. And I think it's good for the producers. Um, let's talk about the music business. If I could actually put a dollar into the pocket of my favorite band every time I bought or downloaded one of their MP3s, that band would be much more successful than it is today. Um, because there's this chain that used to have to exist to, to make records that, yep. that doesn't need that. They, you don't need any of that anymore. So, you know, what do you need out of that system is you need the way to promote the band, get them into a club, get them broadcasting on radio. That's a completely different thing than the structure that existed to print records. There's some of that happening in the, in the beverage business where, uh, yeah, I still need to get that thing packaged, but I got enough space in my brewery where I can just stack stuff up and ship it to my, um, you know, ship it to my customers. And we're starting to see this in those types of things by, you know, increase in, in uh, on-prem sales, you know, 
all the small wineries wouldn't exist that they couldn't do direct to consumer. Anyway, um, really interesting, really, really interesting time. And I think that we as consumers get to reap the benefits of that because stuff that we find out in the world, we can have sent to us um, where we couldn't before. So it's kind That's of cool. That's true. There's, there's still state laws. There's still state laws that will get in the way. It's really convoluted. It's going to be forever before it's, you know, like you said, it's just going to be always in a constant state of flux. I know when I go visit my mom, she lives in Orlando. And uh, the last time I went there, I don't know if I told you, shared the story with you or not, but they actually had a Trader Joe's that has opened up there maybe in the last three or four years. So I'm like, yes, Sunday morning, I'm going to roll down to the Trader Joe's, get some stuff for breakfast, get a few things for dinner, stop by the fish market, I'll come back. So I'm in there and, you know, eh, yeah, that looks like an interesting wine. I threw that in the car and I get up there and they're like, what are you doing, dude? It's Sunday. <laughs> Sunday, you can't buy wine on Sunday. Exactly, why? And I'm telling your pastor, <laughs> you're going on the list, buddy. So anyway, yeah, no, it's it it is. Uh, well, hey, you know, let's talk about um, Tennessee. No, 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 that's not yeah. Yeah, Jack Daniels is made in a dry county. Can't buy any alcohol where Jack Daniels is made. It's amazing. It's amazing. It, it yeah. it's stupefying. <laughs> so, hey, so anyway, hey, I've got a, um, uh, the, there's no really cool segue for this, but I got a new favorite beer that I'm going to start drinking. Oh, yeah. What's, Can you guess what it is? I, uh, I have no, I, I have no idea. I'm going to start drinking Coors, my, fa- my friend. Oh, I'm, I'm going for Coors. Why, why I'm, I'm all, I'm all behind them. Molson Coors oh, is giving yes. their UK staff, unfortunately this is in the UK, but hopefully this, this will come over to the United States, two extra weeks paid, quote, life leave, unquote. And you may ask, what is life leave, Al? <laughs> well, life leave, according to them, it's a two extra weeks on top of their existing holiday entitlement and all other leave policies, including sickness and compassionate absence. So I guess that would be if, I don't know, something horrible happened. But the two weeks are meant uh, to be used for everyday tasks, which include, um, you might get, uh, and I think this is going on in Silicon Valley even, uh, take some time off because you have a new puppy at home, uh, moving <laughs> moving house, uh, studying for exams. Or the days, you know, leading up to a wedding, you know, just whatever, you know, you just kind of like want to take care of some things around life. You got an additional two weeks that are paid for. This, and this comes after they've also um, revised their parental leave policy. Uh, and this this goes with across their whole global business. Um, under the new policy, female employees in all markets will be able to take a minimum of 26, 26 weeks of fully paid leave when they become mothers. That's pretty awesome, dude. Yeah, I, I mean, we're getting there, right? I think that should be. I think that should be at least a year. But that's <laughs> I have a different view. <laughs> but no, I, it's it, so these things are these things are good. And you know, you, you know, you were casting aspersions about me being a skeptic. Well, let <laughs> me tell you what. I love all this HR fluff in this thing. There's some economic reason why they're doing this. One hundred percent. This has go. got this has got nothing to do with anything other than it's it is an economic incentive to the business to do it, and so My what would God. that so what would that be? So I remember a number of years ago 
reading, um, I think it was Netflix, like, had their, like, why do you want to come, what's it like to work, or they, they had, like, an HR deck or became an HR deck. But they were the one of the first companies that I became aware of that had unlimited PTO. Yeah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what is up with that? Um, And I started to think about it, and I'm like, well, I have been working in businesses that that was kind of like there was there was an accounting for for time off but it wasn't like draconian it wasn't like when i worked in a production facility um a factory where i had to clock in and out every day things were different well lo and behold you start talking to hr people and they're like oh well Unlimited PTO is fabulous. It's great for the employees, and the business doesn't have to count or carry a liability anymore on their balance sheet for time off. Nice. <laughs> and oh, and and we also found out that almost ninety-eight percent of the employees don't ever take time off. They don't take the time off because they got to get the job done. Yes. So they abolished the liability and quote unquote made everybody's life happier. Well, I you know. People take the same amount of time off. They always took time off. So I wonder if some of that is wrapped up in here. Now, don't get me wrong. I like the unlimited PTO idea. I think it's great. Um, I also work in a business where if I have an internet connection, I can do my job and a computer. I mean, it's it, I, I have a very different job than I think most people do. But yeah. they are mentioning in this article that most of their I don't know if they threw a stat out, but most of their people work flexible schedules anyway. So they're, you know, there's probably an economic incentive for the business somewhere to do this. But at the same time, you know, if you're competing for a worker, the workers are going to go to the place that has this type of program. I agree. And I, and I also think that it's... <sighs> They're just really enriching the program that they already have in place. And I mean, it's, it's a nice perk for uh, employees because, you know, think about when you take time off, if you're, you know, you're Joe Sixpack. I'm not, not casting dis- dispersions on Joe, but you've got X amount of days off for the year. Well, you got like eight or nine holidays, and then you've got your two weeks, maybe three weeks or whatever your vacation time. You know, in a lot of cases, it's probably not enough, especially if you have kids that are in school. It's not enough time. No, off. no. You need more time off yeah. to get things done. Yeah. So uh, this is kind of a nod to that, I think, is, is yeah. what it is, essentially. And, and to your point, the, an, an, another thing, and I'll echo this in a, in a different way. I would argue that most businesses, uh, aside from businesses that are retail businesses, could get everything they need to get done in probably three or four days during a week. I agree with that. The process is is not as efficient as it could be. Yeah, and it could be a thing where you know, are just if we just rethink everything, where you work for two or three days, you have two, like you know, you have you know, you work for four days and then you have like five days off or something like that. Um, some variant schedule. I have worked in a business that did. Uh, 10 day fortnight so you would work like 10 days and have like um four days off mm-hmm. that was an awesome schedule um and it it was a time where things had to it, it, there was there was a sequence of work that that 10 day period 
um, dovetail nicely. But anyway, I'm glad businesses are doing that. Um, I think any business does itself and and the world in general good when they when they enact these types of programs. Um, and more and more, the more and more I experience different types of businesses, and more and more, it comes down to you know if you've got the right leadership, there's a lot you can get get done, and you can really really have a good environment. But it uh, it's great. Uh, kind of on the health thing, and kind of taking care of yourself. I, I do I, I do want to talk about the uh, the pin article. Mm. Um. So all, all, in all, all casting aspersions and joking aside, in the way that the article is written, um, the uh, there were some bartenders. I think they were in Oakland that got together, um, uh, based on one of them drawing a uh, a circle with a slash through it, um, to remind himself not to drink during his shift when he was bartending. So, you know, this is a problem in the business. If you're in this business, if you're in the uh, wine and spirits business, you're, you know, you're around alcohol. You're around this drug all the time. And in fact, if you sell this stuff or you in, in any capacity, you you are probably drink it um, all like most of the time when you're at work. And I don't mean like you're having classes of wine, although in the case of a bartender, I could see where, you know, I you know, you buy a bartender a, a drink every now and then, or you might buy a glass of wine or have a glass of wine with a sommelier. Um, if you're trying to control the, your consumption and it's part of your business, um, you know, it makes it tough. So anyway, these guys got together. They created, um, based on this uh, this one bartender's experience, a, a pin, and this pin's pretty distinct. Um, of what it looks like obviously the link will be in the show notes but you know the article kind of was driving me nuts a little bit about uh you know talking about um the other bartender's experience with it but it's something to watch out for and something to think about um because that can be a really tough thing for folks and you know um just being aware i think is helpful it's good that you're getting in on your touchy-feely side with this article bill i'm impressed thank you i mean thank the you. words I'm in- healing and feelings all of those things come to mind when i hear you talk hey if it helps somebody <laughs> in their quest to do something that's challenging to them absolutely that's a good thing yeah it's it's pretty rare you know early on in life when i was in college you know obviously i worked not obviously but i worked in restaurants so i was around this whole you know alcohol was everywhere and it was readily accessible so it wasn't uncommon that you would run into bartenders that were, you know, at the end of the evening, they were they were pretty tanked you know, <laughs> because they've been consuming all all night, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you have to be, uh, you know, so I, I, I applaud it um, and I'll, I'll be looking for those pins next time I go in. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting article. Like you said, it's it's very um, uh, millennial-ish. Yeah, well, you know, so if if you are um, if you are middle-aged, um, well, let me just say it: if you're a, a Gen Xer or a baby boomer, I highly recommend you read this article. You'll probably get a kick out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is very. <laughs> I, the other thing I'll say: it's very San, It's very Bay Area. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Good point. It's very Bay Area. There's a lot of snowflakes out here. Yeah. 
so we should wrap it up. I just wanted to uh, really quickly mention um, uh, Dean and DeLuca closed up over in Napa. Yeah, in other places. So I, you know, the uh, I was reading this article and I got, I think it's like three paragraphs in. It's like Dean and DeLuca was purchased by this, I don't know, wealthy, wealthy, I think he's from Thailand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, yep. oh, well, that's all I needed to read. And here's why I say that. Nothing around somebody from some uh, some somebody from Thailand coming in and buying a business. Um, nothing around with a big company buying a small company. The reason I think that's an issue in this context is Dina DeLuca became famous for curation of very specific food items. Dina DeLuca was the first place I like there when I remember going into Dina DeLuca in Soho in 1992, and I was blown away. I had never seen food like that before in my life. And you could buy it and you could eat it in that building. That yep. requires a lot. And it was, it was, not, not only was it high quality ingredients, it was prepared to perfection. So I had a latte. It's what, like one of the, I still remember that thing. <laughs> it was that good. Um, and people were treating this as normal, but I think you have to have a very specific DNA in your employees for retail to begin with. And then to have it in the food business requires an even different set of skills that not everybody has. Yeah. And in retail, there's a, there's, a, there's a personality and a composition that makes, that makes retail businesses successful and has to do with, if you want to, if you want to study that stuff, go look at Danny Meyer. He's figured it out. Um, and then, you've got to run it as a business. So these skills are, are unique. And I, when a big company buys something like this, um, I think it's very challenging for them to operate it. Um, because there's a lot of soft skills that don't necessarily translate into operationalizing a business. Well, they're not, I mean, they bought the brand just a couple of years ago, man. Just, I mean, yeah, and it, seventeen, and then it went and south. And when they bought it, when they bought it, it had there was forty stores operating in the states. Now there's, I mean, it's just a handful, so it was like eight or something. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, they obviously from the get go had a tough time. I mean, they're not paying their vendors, um, they're backing out of deals, uh, they're not paying their landlords. Uh, they opened up a store. Uh, what the the big store in uh, New York? They opened it up just three months ago. Then they closed it down. Uh, three months later, I mean, they're they're done, dude. And the guy says he's restructuring, which means he found another group of bankers that think he's gonna be able to pull it off. But it doesn't look good, man. It it does not it does not look good for them. That building is outrageous, though. Did you see that King Power Manhattan Tower in Thailand? That picture? Yeah, man, it, uh, that's, that's it, quite the work of art. It's, what, do you think, uh, what do you think an apartment in that cost? Well, I have no <laughs> idea. I probably, I, hmm, I don't know. I, Thailand is known to be a um, uh, a place where your dollar goes a long way. Yeah. Um, and then the building Al is talking about is uh, um, for those of you know that know know what Jenga is. So Jenga is a game where you you stack it's a big stack of blocks and then you have to take each time you have a turn you have to take one of the blocks out so it's like three blocks 
um, in a row, and then you stack another three blocks um, perpendicular to that, um, and you make this tower. This thing looks like a Jenga game that about halfway through. <laughs> At Good the top, description. It's, Good description. It's crazy. It's it, there's also um, uh, a bunch of stereotypes around Thai people that that would probably make people laugh that it's all kind of convoluted at the top and kind of crazy Jenga ish. Um, <laughs> I, I, just... I tell you, I would, I would hate to be uh, a purveyor. I mean, some of these, these small vendors, um, they're owed some big time bucks. Right. And how much is know... a croissant? How much is a croissant wholesale croissant? What do you think? Wholesale? Two, yeah. Two bucks. Ah, Maybe a buck. Yeah. Maybe this, a buck. But this... I mean, if you've made them and you know, your, your invoice, you know, the company owes you $56,000. For croissants! <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah. for croissants! You're probably counting what? on getting that $56,000 if you own that business. You know, that's part of your that's part of your operating cash that you're looking forward to getting. 51000 to your account. So, yeah. I mean, they haven't paid. I don't think they've paid anybody for the year of 28, 2019, I know. And some of these places, they just sued. Like uh, Eleni's Cookies, she sued for $86,000. And she had to settle for 50 cents on the dollar, which she should consider herself lucky. Yeah, that's true. 50 cents on the dollar, yep. because I don't think a lot of these other people are going to get that. You know, so, I mean, she was one of the first ones to get in there. But, uh, yeah, they're not there. It, it doesn't look good. And the stores are just closing up and... Um, you know, there's just a sign on the door closed and that's it. You know, that's how it was in Napa. You know, people are walking up there to get, you know, it's like, hey, what's going on here? They're out. So it's all the people that are working there. It's all the purveyors. Um, it's a it's a sad situation. Um, but uh, shoot, we need to we need to end on a high note, Bill. <laughs> we got something here where we can end on a high note. Um, uh do you see the uh, Do you see the influence of Oak on Wine? Do you see that? I did. What do you think of that? Uh, I liked it for its educational purposes, for sure. Um, it uh, It's a great breakdown of it, it's It's just awesome. It, if you want to know why there's Oak and Wine, read this article. I'll tell and, you and one... and why and what and what happens with Oak and the wine. That's you know it's a very, it's an in depth. Um, article I'll, I'll say this the more that i drink wine the more that my palate changes i'd say probably if i look back a couple of years ago my palate was not as appreciative of wines that had um a modest amount of oak in them so I tended to drink wines that had less oak. I was drinking more Cote de Rome's. I was drinking, um, I was drinking more European wines that tend to, in general, in general, have less oak influence. And now I find my palate is changing a little bit, and I'm craving that. I call it the catnip of wine. I'm craving that oak a little bit more. Um, I had this bottle recently. It's uh, Roti. And it's from uh, Walla Walla Valley. Walla just, Walla. Yeah, it just makes me laugh. <laughs> Walla Walla. And um, it's a it's a ninety four percent Syrah and six percent Vognier. And man, I mean, just 
heavily oaked. <laughs> it's been some it's been some time in some French oak. And it's uh it was an awesome bottle. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. And um whereas maybe a couple of years ago I might not have enjoyed this this wine as much as I did um the other night. Do you um why do you think do you think that's just because you're changing um from in a physical standpoint from from an you know is that something to do with you know getting older not that you you know which does we i mean we know obviously when you're younger you know your taste buds aren't developed and so you know that that all changes throughout the course of your life and the amount of you know as you get your you know the to the point where you mature, you can kind of taste it. I wonder if there's some decline. You know, is that due to some decline somehow in the, your near uh, taste buds ability? Taste to, buds, yeah. yeah. Or, no, it's, or I, would, I would imagine that it's a possibility. Yeah. Um, or is it just your? Is it just your? Um, your maybe your? Hmm, why are why are you? It's interesting. Interesting question to ask you. I I would wonder myself what. You know what would? I, I'm not a big fan of oak. I think my 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 tastes are more in line with yours. I'd rather have a less oaked um, wine. And in fact, there there there's some wines I've had that are it's just enough to turn me off from oak completely. <laughs> I just so I I wonder is it just where the is it just an appreciation thing? Is it a you know? Is it a, a sign of uh, of you of uh, aging? You know, sort of what what is it that, or is it? Did you just find? Or are you just finding wines that are, you know, they've got more oak in them, but they just do a better job of putting it all together? Well, I'll answer your question in a couple of ways. I'll say this: I say if you really truly want to learn what the differences are between varietals or a varietal, say you want to learn the difference between Zinfandel and Pinot Noir, I would say that it's easier to recognize the differences between those two when there's less oak influence in the wines because the fruit carries carries the day. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that, so, so that's sense. part of it. I, I think with some of the wines these days, um, I'm not going to call out any particular region or anything, but there's certain regions where they heavily depend on the influence of oak. And oak is almost like, um, it's like lipstick for wine. You know, that's some, lip, some lipstick on a woman is good, that's but a... when it's overdone and it's not the right shade, it's yeah it's she, she looks like a clown so that's that's what um that's how i view oak so i i like oak done in a stylish uh not over the top way to where it complements the fruit that's in the wine and and i i think that's why i'm 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 eurocentric uh a little bit more eurocentric than than maybe uh some should say i should be <laughs> did i answer your question <laughs> yeah that's great <laughs> that's great hey look man it, please don't tell me how to taste anything. I say that it, anyone should say that. My, my, I drill into my, I drill into my sons. Hey, your opinions are your opinions, and there's no right or wrong about that. That's um, right. So, All right. yeah, and so, you know, words cannot hurt you, my friend. It's true. It's true. They can't hurt. So they can't kill you. They can't hurt you. <laughs> they can make you feel bad. Yeah, they can make you feel bad. You might leak around the eyes, but yeah. other than that, yeah, you'd be good to go. You're not gonna bleed. <laughs> <laughs> 
um, <laughs> on that note, um, and uh, anything uh, besides that bottle of wine that you um, that you've had recently that you want to talk about? Uh, I'll probably I'll probably uh, put a post on about the uh, roti. Okay. And also, okay. I'll probably talk about the Tenuta di Arceno. Um, this is a wine. Um, this is actually owned. This company is owned by uh, Gallo, and it's a Chianti huh. from uh, from obviously from the Chianti classical region. Yeah. But my wife and I'll be having this tonight. I've had it several times. I'll do the write up of it. Um, I'll just tell you right now, it's a great bottle. Um, <laughs> it's at a great. It's at a great price point. I don't know how they do that. Um, they make uh, some super high-end stuff that's like uh, you know in the hundreds of dollars of bottles that I've tried. They make this incredibly outrageous Merlot, but you can't find it here in the states. This is the only wine that I've seen that they make that's available in the states. But I'll talk about it on that. I'll do a write-up for it. Right on. All right. Hey man, uh, uh, thanks everyone for listening. Bill, how do they? find us how do they contact yes, us you can email us at info at vino101.net you can uh hit us up on the twitters al mans the twitters and uh is on it and uh you can always post uh on our site at vino101.net thanks for listening cheers everybody cheers